Franklin Church of Christ finds you and welcomes you as we open our hearts to the Word of God. Once a month, Edward Crozier answers questions submitted by the members of the Franklin Church of Christ. During this lesson, Edwin responds to the following request. Please explain Revelation 20 and the thousand years. It's an exciting lesson. May God bless this study and bless you. It is the second Sunday night of the month, which of course means we're having our question and answer session for the month. Tonight we will only be able to get to one question and answer, I think. There we go. Please explain the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20. I figured I'd better go ahead and answer this question because it's been submitted twice. And since I didn't get to it quickly enough, they submitted it again, and I thought I'd better do it now, otherwise it might be a third time. I'm not answering this question tonight because I think that I have the handle on the book of Revelation. I certainly have a great number of questions about the book. But I am answering it because I have what I believe is probably a different perspective than most. And what I would like to do is just share with you where I am and what my perspective on the book of Revelation is, and specifically regarding the thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. And really my greatest desire is that we'll just, number one, be able to share with you what I think, and number two, just prompt more discussion and study about this awesome book that closes out our Bible. And so there are a couple things that I want to talk with you tonight about Revelation chapter 20. The very first thing that I want to point out to you is that while I have a great number of questions about Revelation chapter 20, there is at least one thing that I know for certain about Revelation chapter 20 and what it is not teaching us. Revelation chapter 20 is not, despite what you have heard and despite what you have read, is not teaching us that Jesus at some point in time is planning on establishing an earthly kingdom here on this earth, reigning on David's throne from Jerusalem that is going to last for a thousand years in earthly time. He is not teaching that. I know that He is not teaching that because if that is what John meant in Revelation chapter 20, He would be contradicting clear teaching that is repeated consistently throughout the New Testament. I'd like for you to take a look at a couple of passages about what Jesus said about His kingdom. And I'm going to do this very quickly because I don't want to spend a great amount of time on what it's not about. I want to talk about what I think it is about. But notice what Jesus said in Mark 9 and verse 1 and also in Matthew 16, 28 and Luke 9, 27, parallel passages. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He was talking to folks and he said, the kingdom of God will come with power and some of you will still be alive when it happens. Since, brethren, all of those people are dead, I can only have one conclusion. The kingdom of God has come and it has come with power and these folks were able to see it. But we might say, well, we haven't seen Jesus reigning on the earth. We haven't seen Him in Jerusalem and some kingdom established. Well, notice what else Jesus says about the kingdom He was planning to establish. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. 
You see, the problem, brethren, is that the Jews in the time of Jesus were expecting an earthly kingdom where the Messiah would reign from Jerusalem on David's throne. Regrettably, modern premillennialists are expecting the exact same thing. But what did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was planning to establish a kingdom. He was going to establish a kingdom, but the kingdom He was going to establish is not a physical kingdom. He was not planning on reigning from Jerusalem here on the earth. He was not planning on sitting on a literal throne there in Jerusalem. He was planning on establishing a spiritual kingdom, sitting on the spiritual throne of David in the heavenly city of Jerusalem. He was not planning to establish a physical kingdom but a spiritual one. And he said that that kingdom would be established within the lifetimes of those who listen to him. All I can ascertain from that, unless Jesus is a liar or was mistaken, is that this kingdom he was planning to establish has already been established. But I want you to notice what else the Scripture says about this. A couple of New Testament passages. For instance, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred, notice that, E-D. You know what that means? Past tense. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Not someday is going to transfer us. Not someday will be in the kingdom of His beloved Son, but has already transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're not awaiting some future kingdom. If we're Christians, we've already been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Notice in Acts chapter 2, And I want to go back to Acts chapter 2 and read several verses surrounding the key text that I have for you on the board. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at about verse 25, Peter in his first sermon there on the day of Pentecost says this, as he quotes the Psalms. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, Peter, from this verse, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says God made some promises to this offspring of David. One of the promises is that he would not undergo decay, but would be resurrected. One of the other promises there, that he would be at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling until all enemies were at his feet. But notice what Peter says. Verse 33. Having been exalted to the right hand of God. Psalm 110 prophesies that Jesus at the right hand of God is going to rule over the nations of the earth. What does Peter here say? He says, Jesus is already there. 
Reigning at the right hand of God does not mean having a throne in the city on earth at Jerusalem and ruling over the nations in a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual realm. And Jesus is already at the right hand of God no less than 14 times in the New Testament. The Bible says Jesus is already at the right hand of God. Fourteen times. We're not awaiting Him to be exalted to the right hand of God sometime down in the future. He is already there. He is reigning. He is ruling over the nations of the earth. The problem is folks want a physical kingdom. The Jews wanted it. That's why they killed Him in the first place. And now their spiritual descendants are expecting the exact same thing. But that is not what Jesus prophesied. But I'll tell you what, and this is the great kicker. We can look in the book of Revelation and we can find from the book of Revelation that John himself understood that the kingdom of Christ is already established. Take a look in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. He said about Jesus Christ, He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Notice what he says. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. When John began this book that contains Revelation chapter 20, he points out to us that Jesus is already the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're not waiting for some future rule of Jesus. It's already been established. John knew that when he wrote Revelation chapter 20. In verse 6, he goes on to say, And He has made us to be a kingdom. Priest is God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. What's He already done? He has made us to be a kingdom. We're already a kingdom. Verse 9. Notice what John says. I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation... He wasn't waiting, he was not waiting for some seven year tribulation down the road. They were already in tribulation. But not only is he a partaker in tribulation, but he is a fellow partaker in the kingdom, which is in Jesus Christ. John recognized that he and the people to whom he were, were writing were already partakers in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They were not expecting some future kingdom. They were already in the kingdom. And further in chapter 5 and verse 10, it's repeated as the elders and the creatures honor God. They say, honor Jesus. They say, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they'll reign upon the earth. Made them. It's already happened. It's not something that's coming down the road. Therefore, Though I have a great number of questions about the book of Revelation, and though I have a great number of questions about chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, one thing I already know, whatever Revelation chapter 20 is teaching us, it is not teaching us that the kingdom of Christ is sometime in the future and that it's going to be a physical kingdom here on the earth. The kingdom of Christ has already been established. Jesus said it was coming with the lives of His hearers. Paul said Christians were already transferred into it. John himself, at the beginning of Revelation, said it's already here. And so whatever Revelation chapter 20 is teaching, it is not teaching that. If it is teaching that, it would contradict what the Scripture says. In clear passages, a repeated, constant theme throughout the New Testament, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is reigning on David's throne over the heavenly city of God, which is His church, His kingdom. It's already happened. Revelation 20 is not prophesying some future kingdom. It's just not doing it. But what is it about? In order to answer what it is about, we've got to back up. Before taking a look at Revelation chapter 20, I think we've got to take a step back and look at the book of Revelation as a whole. The number one biggest mistake that we make today regarding study of the book of Revelation is we neglect to take into account exactly what kind of book it is. We do not take into account the genre of writing. If I were to ask you what kind of book is the book of Revelation, what genre is it, 
the great majority of us would say, oh, the book of Revelation, that's a book of prophecy. Is that what you would say? Yeah, that's what we would say. But that's not accurate. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse. That's not to say that there are not prophetic elements. That's not to say that John did not tell about some things that are going to be happening in the future. But the thing that we have to understand is that the kind of book that Revelation is, it is an apocalyptic book with prophetic elements. It is not a book of prophecy with apocalyptic elements. The thing that we need to understand is that God did not create this kind of writing when He decided to have John pen the book of Revelation. We are not very familiar with apocalypse. We are not very familiar with books that are wholly written with this style of genre. We just, we're just not. But our New Testament counterparts in the first century were familiar with it. The Jews, during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes and during other times of struggle and turmoil, they wrote all kinds of books that were just like this. Not inspired. They, that was just a kind of literary genre. And as God wanted to produce this message through John, as He was giving it to this first century church, He chose to use a style of writing that these people were already familiar with. And they understood some of the norms and some of the rules, and they understood how to take it. We often do not. And so if we're going to understand Revelation 20, if I'm going to be able to share with you what I think about Revelation 20, we've got to back up. And understand how we're supposed to take, just plainly take, apocalyptic literature. And so I want to share with you some of the norms, some of the rules that go along with apocalyptic books. The first rule that we need to recognize and understand is that apocalypse is always born out of a present faith in crisis. Apocalypse was always written because there was an immediate problem. Those intertestamental apocalypses that were written during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, what was happening? The Jews were under trial. They were under tribulation. And they wanted to know that God was with them. And these books were written to provide that kind of confidence for them. But it is always born out of a faith in crisis. There is an immediate issue. We've got a problem here. The big question of apocalypse. Are you ready for this? Apocalypse always asks this question. If God is so good and God is so powerful, then why are things so bad right now? Have you ever asked that question? If God is so good and God is so powerful, then why are things so bad right now? What's God doing about it? That's what Apocalypse, that's the question Apocalypse tries to answer. God is good and God is powerful, but things are really bad. Why? Because I'm struggling. If things don't get better soon, I might just fade out. And so Apocalypse is written. I want you to take a look. Revelation is no different. They were not thinking about what might happen sometime down the road, two to three thousand years later. They were in a crisis of faith. Folks were struggling. John himself said there in chapter 1 in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. They were participating in tribulation right now, as he wrote the letters to the seven churches of Asia in three of them, he talked about the tribulation and the persecution that they were dealing with and the fact that they had toil and they needed to persevere. Chapter 2 and verse 2, as he was writing to Ephesus, I know your deeds, I know your toil and perseverance. They're having to persevere. That means they're having to continue on in the face of struggle. Verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured 
for my name's sake. Endurance is the idea of keeping on, even though it's tough, it's hard, and things are opposing us. As he wrote to the letter, as he wrote the letter to Smyrna, in verse nine, he says, of chapter two, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Verse ten, do not fear what you're about to suffer. There was a crisis of faith. Right then, there was tribulation, there was sorrow, there was struggling. In the letter to Pergamum, chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Can you just imagine that? David got up here and made some announcements here a little while ago. Sister so-and-so is sick, brother so-and-so. Don't forget about these meetings. Could you imagine if sometimes we had to gather here and David announced at the beginning, well, brethren, I hate to say it, but Mark Joseph was arrested and executed on Friday night because he's a Christian. Could you imagine that? Phil Barnes was down to lead singing tonight, but he's in prison. Let's pray for him. He's in prison because he's a Christian. Could you imagine that? What a struggle of crisis. Could you imagine that, Phil? Edwin had a great lesson prepared for us, but he was awakened in his home this morning and carted off, and they killed him this afternoon. That's a struggle. That's a crisis. That's an immediate issue that we want immediate answers for. If God is so good and He is so powerful, then why are things so bad right now? And it is no wonder then that John repeatedly over and over again says, this is something that I'm dealing with that's going to happen right now. It's going to take place soon. It's near. It must soon take place. I'm coming quickly, Jesus says over and over again. Why? Because we've got a crisis of faith right now and we want to know what God's going to do about it. And Apocalypse is written to give that answer. Look in chapter 1. Notice John repeatedly. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Jesus, as he's writing to, this, to the church here, Philadelphia, he says, I am coming quickly. You know, one of the big problems is every time we hear, I am coming, we think into the world. If you read through the Old Testament, you find out, I am coming, just had to deal with God's judgment. He says, I'm coming quickly. Three times already at the beginning. Now look at the last chapter of the book. John wanted us to know from the beginning and at the very end, this is near. We've got a present faith in crisis and we're going to do something about it soon. Chapter 22 and verse 6. He said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 7, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10, And He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And finally, in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What is he telling us over and over again? This is about a faith in crisis. 
We need answers now about our situation now. And John says, I'm giving you answers about your situation now. This is all going to happen. It's going to happen quickly. So just hold on. Jesus is coming quickly. Number two. Apocalypse is dualistic. In order to answer this question, what's the question? If God is so good and God is so powerful, then why are things so bad right now? What is God doing about it? In order to answer that question, Apocalypse takes on a dual role. It talks about what's happening down here on the earth. But then it strives to pull back the curtain and to look up into heaven and to see what's going on up there. What is God doing? When is God going to do something? What is happening in the big picture? You look back in chapter 4 and verse 1 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 4 and verse 1, that's why John... After this introduction, it says in chapter 4 and verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. Why? Because we want to know what God's doing. We're going to see what's going on on the earth, but we want to know what's going on up in heaven. And that's exactly what Apocalypse strives to answer. We need to recognize that we are a small part of a big picture. The big thing that God is doing, and we must not get so bogged down in our small part here on the earth that we forget that God is doing something. And Apocalypse strives to answer that by pulling the veil back and looking into heaven and talking about what's going on there. I want you to remember what Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul wrote there, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We see things down here, but Apocalypse is telling us that's not all. Let's see what's happening in heaven, what God is doing and what God is going to do in His good time. And so it opens the door. Number three, Apocalypse is symbolic. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant, John. If you've got the King James or the New King James, it says there that He sent and signified it. The Greek word there is semeano. And what it means literally is to put into signs. To signify. John is telling us you need to understand what you're about to read is symbolic. It's signs what's going to come. Regrettably, because the premillennialist camp has so dominated the propaganda on the book of Revelation, and they have so said, oh, we take the book of Revelation literally. Well, we take the Bible literally, which, by the way, and I'm not going to get into this too much tonight, they don't, but that's for another sermon. But because they said, oh, we've got to take the Bible literally, we just take it literally, just what it says, what it means, and we do that all the time, unless it's absurd. It's caused some of us to believe that, well, when we say that it's symbolic, we're lessening the meaning of Scripture. Brethren, we're not weakening Scripture. Jesus said, I am putting this to you in signs. And when we take the book of Revelation as symbolic, we're not lessening it, we're not weakening it, we're reading it the way Jesus said we're supposed to read it. Which is weaker? To read it the way Jesus said to read it? Or to read it some other way? 
He says, I'm putting it in signs. It's symbolic. However, as we take a look at the symbolism of an apocalypse, we need to recognize that it's grand, it's visual, it's vivid, and it's very extravagant. We look at Matthew chapter 13, and we read the parable of the sower, and we find symbolism there, and we know that one thing represents another, and each part of it just about represents something. We've got the seed, which represents the Word of God. The soils represent some kind of heart. The the birds represent Satan who removed the Word from somebody's heart. The weeds represent something. The rocks... All those things represent things. But that's not the way the symbolism works in apocalyptic literature. Now, that's not to say that there's not ever any representative symbolism in apocalypse. There certainly is. I mean, Jesus talked about the seven lampstands. He said these are the seven churches and the stars. These are the angels of the churches. Representative symbolism. But what we can't do is take that type of of concept of symbolism and push it unilaterally and uniformly throughout the book of Revelation because it just doesn't work that way. That's not what apocalypse is. Have you ever heard anybody talk to you about something and they say, you know what, don't miss the forest for the trees? You ever heard anybody say that? That's what we need to do with Apocalypse and with the book of Revelation. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Apocalypse is a forest kind of literature. There are trees there, not because we're supposed to climb every one and figure out what every single tree and every leaf and every branch means and represents. There are trees there because that's what a forest has. It has trees. But our job is not to figure out what does every tree mean. Our job is to take a look and say, what does the forest represent? And too often, if we spend our time climbing all of the trees, we're going to miss the forest. It's a big picture book. And so as we read through here, we don't have to ask, well, what, what exactly do these two witnesses represent? What exactly do the four creatures represent? And boy, it said they got six wings. What does each of those wings represent? And it talked about the rainbow. I wonder what each of the colors of the rainbow represent. And there's twelve gates in the city and a stone. I wonder what all the... We don't have to ask all that. Apocalypse is not written to get us to run up and down every tree, but to see the forest. And as it presents those pictures to us, the big pictures... It provides it in very vivid, very visual, very extravagant pictures and images to get that big picture across to us. Reading the book of Revelation is a lot like watching a movie. We watch the movie and we know that the guys wearing the black hats, what are they? They're the bad guys, right? And the guys wearing the white hats, what are they? They're the good guys. We know that. But we don't sit there throughout the whole movie and say, why is there a jail in that town? And why on earth do they have a saloon? And what's this deal with riding horses all over the place? And tumbleweeds, man, they're always running across the road. What's up with that? We don't ask all those questions. Why? We know why they're there. It's a Western. And those are the details that fill in the picture of a Western, right? It'd be a pretty boring Western if those details weren't there. But we don't get bogged down in trying to figure out what every single thing means. We're taking the big picture as a whole. You ever been around somebody that you're watching a movie and they're just they're autopsying the movie? Just oh, it couldn't work that way. And what on earth did that mean? Why do you think they were writing with their left hand? You, you ever watched a movie with somebody like that? I know you have because I see some of you nudging. You're married to somebody like that, aren't you? Okay. Uh, that's not. We know, that's not how you treat movies. And that is not how you treat the book of Revelation. That's not what it's intended. It's intended to give these big pictures, but they're vivid, they're visual. Why? You want to know why? 
Because that's exciting. Which would you prefer to read? A doctrinal dissertation on how God is going to overcome Satan? Or would you rather read about armies embattled with one another as the, these armies have come up out of the earth and they're going to attack God and all His people and fire comes out of heaven and consumes them and, and they die and the birds feast on their flesh? Which is more exciting and which one would you rather read? Which would you rather read? A prosaic definition of the enemies that Satan will use in order to attack us about government and false religion? Or is it more exciting to read about these huge beasts with ten heads and, and, and horns and, and women riding on their back and, and, and worshiping them and all these things and they want everybody to worship them and they brand on the forehead the people who follow them and then God grabs them and casts them into a lake of fire? Which one would you prefer to read? That's why Apocalypse is used. Because it's exciting. It grabs our attention. Let's face it today. What is everybody's favorite book? They just all want to know. Boy, I just want to know what Revelation means. Why? Because Revelation is exciting. Man, I read that. That's amazing. Beasts and, 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 and fire and, and stars falling from the sky and the moon turning to blood. That's exciting. I want to know what that means. That tells us why this is so effective. Because it attracts attention. And that's why it's written that way. Number five. Apocalypse instills complete confidence in the victory of God. Before we go any further, the book of Revelation, if you want to know what it means, I can tell you in two words. No matter what anything else means, the book of Revelation means God wins. And that's what it's about. God wins. We've got a crisis of faith going on. Because of this crisis of faith, these letters tell us that, that there are some who are adulterating the doctrine of Christ. There are some who are being impacted by the world and they're becoming lukewarm. There are some who are compromising the will of God. We've got a crisis of faith. And here's what you've got to know. God's going to win. You want to be on His side. That is what it's all about. And so every picture... It's vivid, it's visual, it's grand, it's extravagant. It's going to talk about how bad things are. But when it talks about how bad things are, it's not just going to say so-and-so got killed the other day. It's going to talk about beasts that are coming up out of the ground, that are eating people and destroying people and branding people with marks. It's going to talk about men of power who follow God who died and the whole world rejoices over them. But then when it talks about the victory of God, it's going to talk about it in equally vivid, visual, and graphic terms. It's going to talk about judgment pouring down like hundred-pound hailstones. It's going to talk about horse-like locusts that come up and eat people and bite them and, and disturb them and torment them. They won't kill them. It's going to talk about the moon being turned to blood. It's going to talk about stars falling from the sky. It's going to talk about fire coming down and consuming the enemy. It's going to talk about being thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Because it wants us to know things look bad. God wins. And look at how amazing the victory is going to be. Look at how grand it's going to be. That's what it's about. Now, within this framework, brethren, we have to read everything in the book of Revelation. This is how we read it. The book of Revelation was not given to, to give us some type of detailed prophetic timeline drawn to scale about what's going to happen throughout the world's history. Or, I don't know what you call it if you're talking about a future. Yeah, it's throughout the world's future. It's not what it's given to us for. 
It's given to us to provide a big picture that says things look bad, but here's what God is doing, here's what He's going to do. And He's going to win, so you want to be on His side. That's how we need to read the book of Revelation. So, Revelation 20. Let's get ourselves up to Revelation 20 very quickly. He introduces the book, of course, he talks about how this vision starts in Revelation chapter 1, and then in chapters 2 and 3, through the letters. Of course, it's amazing how often we separate the letters from the rest of the book, and that is a big, big mistake, as we're going to see here in just a few moments about Revelation chapter 20. These letters are, are a part of this book. Let's not separate them. But throughout these letters, Jesus demonstrates to John, I know what's going on, and I know what my people are doing. I know the ones who are being faithful, and I know the ones who are being weak. I know what's going on. That's what those letters are all about. Then in chapter 4 and chapter 5, John is taken up into heaven, and he's able to see a picture of the confidence of God in heaven. In fact, he is reminded at this time of extreme doubt that he he said, look, you guys got to overcome. But then in chapter 5 and verse 5, he's reminded, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So as to open the book and its seven seals. He's reminded. Up in heaven, we're not worried. We're not wondering. We know who's going to win because we've already won. See, we're dualistic. We know what's going on on earth. Now look at what's going on in heaven. God knows who's going to win because it's already happened. Then from chapter 6 on down through chapter 19, we see a series of interlocking big picture visions and you want more detail about that, get the tape from this morning's lesson of the outline that's out on the table because we looked at quite a bit of what's going on through there. That's part of the reason I did this morning's sermon because ooh, we haven't even got to Revelation 20. I've already been talking for 20 minutes. But remember what we see in all these visions. We see two sides. On the side of good and right, we've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They've got their angelic hosts and they've got folks down here on the earth that have their seal on them that are following them. On the side of evil, we've got Satan, we've got his beast, which is the government, and we've got the false prophet, almost like a satanic trinity. And then they've got their own angelic hosts, and they've got their own myriads of people here on the earth. And there's constant fighting. And at times it looks like the side of evil is going to win, but repeatedly over and over again, what do we see? God's judgment comes upon Satan and upon his forces and upon his minions, and God always wins. That's what you see in the book of Revelation. One thing, I want to highlight this. As we go through these chapters, we see a contrast between the folks here on the earth that are marked by the beast. In chapter 13, beginning at verse 16, he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy and sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here are those who are following after the beast. They're marked. You can tell them. Because they look like they're following the beast. They're not the only ones that are marked. We find in chapter 7 that there's another sign here on the earth. There are those who are marked with God's seal. In chapter 7, verse 1, he says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. He said to them, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And it goes through with a very symbolic 
Think of the 12,000 from each tribe so that we've got 144,000. But then in verse 9, you've got a great multitude which no one can count on the earth that are singing and praising God. We've got these two different groups. Chapter 14 and verse 1, right after it talked about those who were sealed and marked by the beast in chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And you heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and on it goes. We've got these two sides. Because one of the biggest things about the book of Revelation is a contrast between what happens to those who submit and get marked by the beast versus those who refuse the mark of the beast, who overcome the mark and have the mark of God on them. It's a big contrast. And a lot of that, in fact, Revelation chapter 20, it brings up that contrast. We've got to understand that. Finally, as we come into chapter 19, as we're concluding these great visions of how bad things are, but what great victory God is going to bring. Here we have this picture, this ultimate victory over the enemy. In chapter 19, verse 11, John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he's a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Excuse me. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of the Lord, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Here it is. It's the battle. I mean, this is exciting. What is going to happen? Who is going to win? And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. John says, a battle is going on. And the armies of the enemy have assembled themselves, and they're fighting against the armies of God. But brethren, what we've got to understand is, God wins. When it's all over, the beast and the prophet are going to be cast into the lake of fire. They're going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. And everyone who followed them are going to be killed with the sword and the birds are going to eat their flesh. That's how it ends. God wins. And that brings us into Revelation 20. As we come into Revelation chapter 20, these first ten verses, as it talks about the thousand years... And all that this has to do, I think we need to ask two questions. What do we see about Satan here? And what do we see about the saints? So we'll begin by asking, what do we see about Satan? Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Drop down to verse 7. 
When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is what's going to happen with Satan. What's going to happen? Well, don't forget, that chapter mark, the big 20 that you've got there, that was supplied by men later. He's continuing what was just said. There was a big battle. Satan was there. The beast was there. The false prophet was there. And all these armies. And we just found out what happened to the beast. He was seized and cast in the lake of fire. What happened to the false prophet? He was seized and cast in the lake of fire. What happened to the army so they were killed and eaten by the birds? What happens to Satan? He's not cast in the lake of fire. He's bound up for a thousand years in a prison. And there's going to be a time down the road where he gets released for a short time after the thousand years. After the thousand years, what's going to happen? He's going to be released for a short time. He's going to deceive the nations. They're going to gather together. And even though their army is going to be at the sands of the seashore, what's going to happen? They're going to lose again. They're going to be defeated. And then Satan's going to be cast into the lake of fire. I think perhaps what causes us the most trouble is this business of being released for a short time. What is going on here? I think there are a couple of keys that can help us out as we're striving to answer this question. Number one, I want you to notice verse 8. What is Satan going to do when he is released for a short time? He'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. But here's the key. This is nothing new. He's not going to be doing something new. He's not going to be doing something different. This is not about some issue where Satan gets to come back and now he's got miraculous great powers and we have to worry about demon possession and all of those kind of things. What is this? He's going to do the same thing he was doing before. Look in chapter 12. What was Satan doing before when he was cast down to the earth? Chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth. He accuses them before God day and night. What's he doing? He's just doing it again. What was he doing before? He was deceiving the nations. How was he doing it? He was using the government. He was using false religion. He was using, using worldly society. What was he doing? He was deceiving the nations in order to do what? To get them to attack God. He gets released after these thousand years. What's he going to do? He's just going to do the same thing. He's going to do it again. But also, don't forget verse 3. Released for a short time. Well, see, now that confuses us because we think that that's somehow different from what's been discussed in the book of Revelation. But look back in chapter 12 again. When he was deceiving the nations this time, that Revelation is talking about. Chapter 12 and verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time time. Well, that's interesting. Everything that the book of Revelation was talking about, how long did Satan have? He had a short time. At the end of a thousand years, he's going to have a short time again. It's not something new. It's not something different. What is John telling us? Satan gets another shot. Same old thing. It's happened before. It's going to happen again. It's happening now. It's going to happen again. But in the end, of course, he does get destroyed. What are the three things that we learn from this when we keep this picture in our minds? 
Number one, we learn that Satan gets another shot at attacking God's people. But he'll lose every time. The particular tools that Satan was using as he was attacking these Christians, the beast, the false prophet, whether you believe that's referring to Jerusalem or to Rome, it really makes no difference to me. But whichever government, whichever false religion he was using, so those are going to be judged and destroyed. They won't ever bother you again. Satan, on the other hand, he's not going to be cast in the lake of fire yet. He's, he's still out there. And he's going to get another shot. He's going to get to attack again. You know what we have here? We have an apocalyptic version of Luke chapter 4 and verse 13. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 13, Satan attacked Jesus. And Jesus overcame. And in chapter 4 and verse 13 of Luke, it says, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. We have a big, grand picture. A very vivid, a very visual picture that tells us that Satan is attacking, and if you win, he will flee. Resist him, and he'll flee from you. But he'll seek another opportune time. He'll get to attack again. But what do we learn? He loses Every time. Number two, we've got a contrast. We've got the saints get to reign and they're victorious for a thousand years. How long does Satan get to attack them? A very short time. I mean, what's the, what's the problem that we have? Things are bad now and we just think this is going to last forever, don't we? And John is repeating throughout this book, listen, this is a short thing. It's not going to last that long. You just have to hang on for a little while. But I tell you what, the victory is awesome. It's amazing. It's great. This is not some prophetic timeline drawn to scale. You know, this is not saying that for every day Satan has attacking us that we reign for a thousand years and then that's over, it's done, and we've got to go back to this. It's just a contrast. It's a big picture contrast that says what you're enduring now, it's not going to last that long. Hang on. Because I'll tell you what, the joys and the glories of victory in Christ are amazing. Far more amazing than what you're dealing with here. What do we have in an apocalyptic version of what it says in Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. And verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what John's saying. The suffering that you're going through now is not worthy to be compared with the glory that you'll have through victory in Christ. Satan only gets to do this for a short time, but victory, it's a long time. What a glory that is. And the third thing that we learn is that in the end, Satan will be ultimately defeated. He gets to attack again, and he will attack. But in the end, understand this. God wins. And ultimately, there is a day coming when Satan will no longer get to attack. And he also will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night. You don't want to be on his side with him. Because in chapter 20, at the end of chapter 20, it talks about the judgment that comes on those who follow Satan. They get cast into the lake of fire with him. We don't want to be on his side. Brethren, this is, this is what I think about Satan in a thousand years. This is not talking about some thousand-year earthly reign that at the end of Satan gets to come out again. Brethren, this isn't even talking about the church age. Not in the sense that we've often heard. What's it doing? It's making a comparison. 
Satan gets a short time to attack. We get a long time for victory. And the glory that we have by being on Christ's side, it's not worthy to be compared. Saints. What about the saints? Chapter 20. I have to let you look at you. Some of you zipped up your Bibles because you thought I was concluding, didn't you? I apologize for... You know, I normally don't apologize for how long it is, but you know, I told Phil, sing some short songs because this is going to take a while. I thought we'd be done by now. I appreciate your patience and your kindness listening. I hope this is helping. Chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. These verses, in my mind, are just really amazing. Keep in mind, they're not written in a vacuum. And that's so often how we take them. We ask this question about the thousand-year reign, and we go look at these three verses and wonder, oh, what on earth does this mean? We can't understand this without the rest of the book, because what these three verses do is they bring together several threads throughout the book. The first thing is we see the promises from the letters. And we see them fulfilled. The victors get to reign as Christ promised. Look at those letters at the very beginning of the book. See why I told you that we don't want to divorce those letters from the rest of the book? In chapter 2, in chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We see both of those things. What do they get? They get a crown of life. They get life. They're reigning. They get a crown. Ten days of suffering versus a thousand years of reigning. Getting ahead of myself. Second, not hurt by the second death. You see that promise in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. That's mentioned there. We look at chapter 2 and verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I have also received authority from my Father, and I'll give him the morning star. What do they do? They get to reign. They get authority. Chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 21. He who overcomes, I'll grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus started off this whole book with promises. Here's what you get when you're victorious. And he ends it by saying, see, I told you so. You made it through the tribulation, and here's what you get. You're reigning with me. What a victorious reign. But it's not just reigning. Look again at chapter 20. In chapter 20 and verse 6, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Uh, Over these, the second death has no power, but they'll be priests. Victors not only reign, they're not only kings, but they're priests. But that goes back to what he said in Revelation chapter 7. Take a look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, John sees this vision of all these clad in white, and they've got palm branches, and, and they're praising God. And the elder asks him, verse 13, or asks him who it is, and he says, you know. And, and so in verse 13... 
He asked who they are, where they come from, and he said, verse 14, sorry, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. What are they? They're priests. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They'll hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They get to be priests with God. He had said that's what was going to happen. We saw a vision of it earlier. Now we see another one. A grander vision of priests that are serving God. But here's something else I want you to notice. Kings and priests. Where have we heard that before? Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. They're praising and honoring the Son. They're worthy are you to take the book and break its seal, for you were slain and purchased for God with you, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wait a minute. Jesus is not in Revelation chapter 20 saying here is something that's going to change and be new for a thousand years. Because we're already kings and priests. As they were going through the tribulation, they were kings and priests. So now for a thousand years, they get to be kings and priests. What's the meaning of that? It's not that something new is going to happen. It's the fact that nothing's going to change. You were kings and priests when you went into the tribulation. You were kings and priests going through the tribulation. When it's all over, you still get to reign as kings and priests. What we have is an apocalyptic vision, apocalyptic version of Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us, for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Don't forget, what is Satan called? The accuser of the brethren in Revelation? Right here. Same thing. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. By the way, just... Throw this one in for free, not to take up too much time. But where's Jesus already? Right hand of God. There's one of those 14. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's Revelation 20 telling us? When the tribulation is over, you're still kings and priests. Nothing can separate you from the love of God as long as you don't switch sides. As long as you don't take that mark from the beast and go over to his side. We're kings and we're priests. And when you go through the tribulation, nothing changes. You don't get separated. And you'll reign and you'll want to be on His side. Thirdly, whether the victors survived or died during the tribulation, they reign with Christ. They're victorious. Whether they survived or they died. When you look there in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, it actually calls to mind two groups throughout the book of Revelation. 
We've got the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. We read about them in chapter 6. And then you've got those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. That group is talked about. Revelation chapter 7. We read those. Remember, we read it just a few moments ago about those who came out of the tribulation. They didn't worship the beast. But look in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Beginning in verse 2. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses. And it talks about the victory that they had. These are the folks who lived through it, who overcame it, who didn't take the mark. Whether they died or whether they lived, they're victorious and they reign. You know what we have? We have an apocalyptic version of the message that Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Isn't that exactly what he was telling us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you'll not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What are the words? Whether you live or whether you die, you still are victorious with Christ long as you don't switch sides. Number four, the reign of Christ's people is better than the reign of the enemy. Once again, here's the problem we have. If we divorce verses four through six and just think about it in a vacuum, we miss this. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12, Revelation 17 and verse 12, we see the folks who get to reign with the beast. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for how long, brethren? One hour. How long do we get to reign with Christ? A thousand years. Again, not a prophetic timeline drawn to scale, but just a comparison. Which one do you want? Do you want to reign with the beast for an hour or do you want to reign with Christ for a thousand years? And one more. We've got to say this one. What's it tell us? God wins. So do his people. And you want to be on his side. That's the message. That's a lot, isn't it? How many of you remember what the first thing I said tonight was? I'm not even sure I remember it. I've got outlines here that I'll have out on the lectern on your way out. If we don't have enough, we can make more. This is where I am on the book of Revelation. It's a little bit different. It's probably different than, than most of what any of you have heard. But I am convinced at this point that that's what it's about. It's just talking about our victory. And whatever tribulation we might go through, Satan gets to attack again. And so whenever he attacks, the message of Revelation, as we said this morning, is the same. God wins. And we want to be on his side. We'll suffer for ten days. We'll reign for a thousand years. Satan will attack us for a short time, but we'll be victorious for eons. And the glory is not worthy to be compared. The suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that we have. Victory in Christ. That's what it's saying. 
And brethren, I believe that's all that it's saying. We don't need to look for some kind of deep, hidden meaning of prophetic events that are coming up. It's just saying God wins. And you want to be on His side. Thank you, Edwin, for that deep and challenging lesson on Revelation 20. Let's remember what we have learned. Jesus' kingdom is already established as a spiritual kingdom. Therefore, Revelation 20 does not prophesy the future establishment of an earthly kingdom. To understand Revelation 20, Edwin explains five norms of apocalyptic literature. One, apocalypse is always born out of a faith in crisis. Two, apocalypse is dualistic, examining the earthly and the spiritual realms. Three, apocalypse is symbolic. Four, apocalypse is grand, vivid, visual, and extravagant. Five, apocalypse instills complete confidence in God's victory. Finally, in Revelation 20, the thousand years is used to discuss two issues, Satan and the saints. Regarding Satan, we learned three points. One, Satan will attack again. Two, Satan's attacks are short compared to the saints' victory. And three, in the end, Satan will be ultimately destroyed. Regarding the saints, we learned five points. One, the victorious saints will reign with Christ. Two, the victorious saints will be priests of God. Three, whether the saints live or die in the tribulation, they will be victorious with Christ. Four, the victory of the saints is greater than the seeming reign of God's enemies. And five, in the end, God wins and his people win with him. Again, we thank you for listening to this lesson. We hope it has helped and edified you. If you have any questions about Revelation 20, the Franklin Church of Christ, or about how you can be on Christ's side, please call us at 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Thank you and may God bless you.